0: Good evening, everyone. This is your host, John, of The Research Review, creating a platform to connect and inspire. I'm here with another excellent guest today, Holly. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your research?
1: Uh, I'm Holly Matthews. I'm a senior physics major here at Kent State University, and I've done two summers of research here, one with the Sherry Program in soft matter physics and in biological physics.
0: Awesome. What got you into research?
1: Um, I've always had a dream, really, of just being a laboratory scientist, even since I was a little kid. Of course, you go through the phases where you want to be a princess and an astronaut. And, but and then, then a scientist. And then a scientist. But then science really just stuck. And I, I think it's really cool to be able to ask a question that doesn't have an answer and then figure out the answer for yourself. I think that's the best part of research. Yeah.
0: Why, why, why physics specifically, though?
1: Uh, physics, as a class, always interested me, mm-hmm. and I've really loved my physics teachers in high school, and they've just kind of instilled a, a passion for the subject, and I enjoy going through the hard stuff of going over equations and doing problems, so being able to use all the skills I've built up to do research and answer questions about the world is really cool.
0: Yeah, no, that's awesome. Now, if I'm correct, you started with your research experience in the SURE program, which is the, the Summer Research Experience hmm what was your first kind of introduction to research?
1: In high school, I did a program called Science Experience, mm-hmm. which is just a class where you get to shadow a graduate student around and see what they're up to. And I was able to come here for at Kent State in the Liquid Crystal Institute, and I shadowed my mentor that was also my mentor for my summer research, Hend Baza, and she's a PhD student in physics.
0: Awesome. So you started at the Liquid Crystal Institute. That's a great place to be. I know a lot of people end up there, but I haven't heard a lot of people starting there. So you must have a clear talent and passion for it. What was the first project you started on?
1: So the first project I did in the Liquid Crystal Institute was investigating how you can control the speed of bacterial droplets in mm-hmm. a pneumatic liquid crystal, which is a really fancy way of saying that we had droplets of water in oil we put the bacteria in the droplets of water, the bacteria move around, and the droplets move.
0: Now, why, why is it important to to study this, what like applications can it be used for?
1: So the the first thing is it's really interesting physically. Mm-hmm. Is uh, we don't know a lot about how things act when they're small. We've known the equations for classical mechanics since the sixteen hundreds, mm-hmm. but one of the frontiers is the physics of the really small. And liquid crystals are a really interesting material, and that's what the of course the institute is focused on. Yeah and understanding the roles of viscosity and low Reynolds numbers, and these are all physical things that we want to do research of, and that's the frontier. The end goal for the research, like the application of the research, of course is not going to be tomorrow, maybe in the next 50 or so years, is that we want to be able to control what happens at a small scale Mm -hmm. and use it for medical applications. Okay.
0: How, How small of a scale are we talking about? Is it a micro scale, a nano, a macro?
1: Yeah, so from the liquid crystals research, it was all on the micro scale. The bacteria were about 7 micrometers long, Mm -hmm. and our our droplets were about 30 micrometers in diameter.
0: Awesome. Now, you said it can be used for medical purposes. What goal specifically are you aiming to use this for in medicine?
1: Yeah, so right now the research is just in the fundamentals of physics, but if we understand these equations and are able to model this, the end goal is to have the, the bacteria act as... Perhaps taxi drivers. To mm-hmm. d- we can put medicine in their droplets and then have the droplets be directed to a certain place in a cell or an organ that needs the medicine. Awesome. So targeted drug delivery is a really big field in medical research. And our work is to understand the physics that would allow that research to happen.
0: To, u- to use bacteria kind of as like delivery cars for this for this medicine.
1: Exactly. That's fantastic.
0: Yeah. Is there anything in development that's close to what you're researching right now?
1: I'm sure medical research is going on in targeted drug delivery, and they have lots of different things about understanding what organs take up what types of molecules so Mm -hmm. you can encapsulate the drug in some sort of molecule that you know that the liver will take up, and then you can get that drug to the liver better. So that's one of the applications, I guess, that we're aiming towards creating something novel and new that the medical people can take over and then use it in studies in live animals and stuff like that.
0: Okay. You've been working on the same project for every single summer that you've been here at Kent State? yeah. Uh, or has no. it d- what's been some of the other ones?
1: So the other project I'm doing is over in the physics department in mm. biological physics, and we build different structures with DNA using a technique called DNA origami, and this is a really new field. The end goal of that project is to create a way to image membrane proteins.
0: Awesome. Now, why is that important?
1: So membrane proteins are a huge thing in research in medical fields because they control how cells uptake certain chemicals and different things and deficiencies in your membrane proteins cause a whole variety of illness. Mm-hmm. So being able to understand all the membrane proteins and their functions would allow much better treatments and medicines to solve those conditions. Yeah.
0: Now, obviously, this this is mostly lab work, right? Of course. Now, what is what is a day in the lab for you kind of look like? Like, what kind of equipment do you use? and or what is your day-to-day routine during research?
1: Absolutely, yeah, so when I was doing research with the bacteria, we used uh, light microscopy, we used polarizing microscopes, but the research for the biophysics with the DNA, we have to use electron transmission microscopes.
0: Those are expensive, aren't they?
1: Yes, (laughs) so we have a, Kent State University has an electron transmission microscope, which is in a shared facility, And then one of my colleagues in the lab uses it to image sample.
0: Yeah. have you ever gotten to touch the microscope or use the microscope?
1: I've gotten to seen it, but they don't typically give training to undergrads <laughs> and stuff like that, as you can imagine.
0: But I've never even seen one. <laughs> they don't try they don't trust me to see one.
1: They're pretty awesome. They mm-hmm. like go all the way from the floor to the ceiling Yeah, there's a bunch huge. of equipment. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You're getting your bachelors in physics, right? Mm -hmm. Do you have any concentrations?
1: So physics has, I believe, seven different concentrations. My concentration is research.
0: Okay. Oh, awesome. And then what do you plan to do after um, undergrad?
1: After undergrad, I plan to go to graduate school to Mm -hmm. pursue my Ph.D. in physics, and I'm working on my applications right now.
0: Awesome. And then are you going... For a master's, in between that, or are you going right over to the the PhD degree?
1: Uh, probably right to PhD in physics. They have programs where you just apply as a someone holding a bachelor's degree for the PhD program, and you go straight through to your PhD.
0: Okay. I, yeah, I wasn't aware of any PhD programs that did that. Was physics one of the only ones, or are there other other fields similar?
1: I think it's quite common in STEM programs for this to be the case. Um, But, of course, there's still lots of people who get their master's and then go for their PhD. Yeah.
0: So, like, what what do you want your concentration to be while you're pursuing your PhD?
1: Pursue my PhD in applied nuclear physics. Okay. Hopefully with medical application, because that's what I'm most interested in. I think it would be cool to do research in nuclear isotopes and medical imaging, Mm -hmm. because in MRIs and PET scans, they use radioactive chemicals to better image different things and better diagnose stuff. Yeah. And I think it would be cool to do research in that area.
0: Awesome. Yeah, and it sounds like you got experience in that right now, because that's similar to the project that you've currently been working on. Sort of, yeah. Yeah. They
1: both have medical applications, but they're in wildly different fields of physics.
0: A question that's been gnawing at me that I've been wanting to ask someone such as yourself, is time travel possible? And if so, how would that be?
1: Well, okay. The short answer is no. You probably can't go back in time and see the dinosaurs. But there is something we like to talk about in the modern physics course called the twin paradox. You've probably heard of it. So this is a part of special relativity, which Mm -hmm. is made by the most famous physicist, I'd say, Albert Einstein, which is a, a simplified form or a guess I should say a specialized form of general relativity, which is what he's most known for. Yeah. I think everybody's heard probably E equals mc squared and been like, yeah, that's a physics equation. No mm-hmm. idea what it means, though. But using equations from special relativity, you can understand how time dilates when you go towards the speed of light. So in the twin paradox, you have twins, which are born at the same time. Mm-hmm. And they have the same age. And one of them stays on Earth. And then the other one gets in a rocket ship and goes, say, to the Andromeda galaxy at close to the speed of light. Yeah. With these equations that we know to be physically true, we can see that from the perspective of the twin that stays on Earth, the twin that goes to the Andromeda galaxy, time is moving slower for her. Uh-huh. So the person on Earth may experience 60 birthdays, but she would only experience 40, depending, of course, how fast she's going.
0: So the person on Earth would experience 60 birthdays yeah. and she would experience 40? Yeah, Okay. So
1: from the perspective of the person on Earth, any clocks that she has in her spaceship are moving slower. Yeah. And so the paradox is, if she looks back at Earth, it appears to her, like, you know, you get in a car and you drive away from your house, it looks like your house is moving away from her, mm-hmm. away from you. Yeah. So from her perspective, when she sees Earth, her brother is moving away from her, so she sees his clock move slower. So she thinks he only experienced 40 birthdays, and while well, she experiences 60. So the paradox is, when she comes back from her trip, it takes a really long time to get to the next galaxy. So if it takes you know more than 200 years, depending on her speed, um, well, I guess it'd be a lot more than that. It's like 200 million light years yeah. or something. But when she comes back, you know, which which twin is alive still, you know? what? Mm-hmm. How do you rectify that her time was moving slower from her, her brother's perspective, and from her perspective, her brother's time is moving slower. Yeah. And that's the paradox. And physicists hate paradoxes. That means the theory's wrong, you know?
0: Oh, I mean, It's also cool.
1: <laughs> it's very <laughs> cool, but they're like, this can't be, we have to solve this. Yeah. So then one of the things that people spend a lot of time on the twin paradox and The equations that Einstein and Lorentz have for special relativity are in fact true, but they have a condition that they only work in non-inertial reference frames, which is a fancy way of saying there's no acceleration. So the fact that to complete this trip to Andromeda and back, she would have to get in the rocket and accelerate towards the speed of light, and then stop and slow down, and then accelerate and come back, changes how the equations work, so we don't have the paradox anymore.
0: So, she would have to do that in order for both of their ages to be the same when she returns?
1: Sort of. So, the paradox is she thinks her brother's aging slower. Yeah. And her brother thinks that she's aging slower. But they can't both be true, right? Uh-huh. So, the reason that it appears like that is because. You have non-inertial reference frames, and the physics of non-inertial reference frames don't follow special rel- relativity.
0: What what are non-inertial reference frames exactly?
1: So these are positions with no acceleration. So if you're at a train that's moving at constant velocity, uh-huh. they go like 200 miles per hour, Yeah. and you drop a pen, the pen will fall straight down. But if you're on a train that's speeding up and you drop the pen, it will kind of move backwards a little bit. Right? Okay. Like when you accelerate in a car, you can feel yourself get pushed back. Yeah. Those are non-inertial reference frames, and those affect how time can be dilated. So in essence, time travel is true in the sense that time isn't fixed. It doesn't have to move at the same rate for each observer. Uh It can dilate, or I guess, yeah, time can dilate. But going back in time to see the dinosaurs, probably not.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's so wild. Time is so weird because it's something that we created to measure things here, but it doesn't apply the same at all all points in space and time.
1: Exactly. That's the big thing with Einstein. and general, relativity is the idea of Mm space-time, that time is not really any different than the components of space.
0: Yeah. So why do we still use time when we're looking at an example like this, where time applies differently?
1: Right, exactly. Well, in our daily lives, we don't appre- approach the speed of light at all. Right. I'd say none of us have ever come close. So <laughs> if you think about it, like the twin paradox, if an astronaut has a twin and he goes to the International Space Station mm-hmm. and he comes back, he'll only be like half a microsecond older than his twin. Yeah. And we don't measure death, uh, time of death in microseconds, so we'd never know. Yeah. So in our daily lives, time is constant. But the the physics of, you know, big things like space and the cosmos and moving at the speed of light, their time can be dilated. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, what are, like, I know physics ranges from anywhere, from anywhere from looking at our DNA to something as massive as a black hole. What are some of the different scales of physics and examples of what we would examine at those scales?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So physics research is... Really wide-ranging, and it's easiest for me to think about it in in terms of sizes. Mm -hmm. So black holes and cosmology is one area of physics where you have massive time scales, you have massive objects, and you're interested in what happens, you know, 10 billion years into the future, not what happens next second. And you're interested in things like, why did the Big Bang happen, you know? What happened to cause that? Or was there anything before the Big Bang? You're answering questions about the universe as a whole. And that's one big frontier of physics. And then moving down in scale, you have astrophysics, which is the physics of galaxies rotating and planetary bodies in orbit. And then a lot of research in that is just like the James Webb Telescope, is getting better instrumentation to see farther and to look at more things and collect more data and see more types of stars, yeah. so, so that's a really cool area of physics as well. And then getting smaller, you come back here on Earth, you have lots of different things you can do with Earth science and atmosphere physics, mm-hmm. and you can describe the physics of airplanes and design better, you know, Boeing 40, 747s yeah. that can fly cheaper or fly cleaner. That's another great area of physics is clean energy. and then you get down to physics of the macro scale, and then physics of the very small, like the bacteria in the liquid crystals, oh. is physics of the micro scale. And, and then that's, 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 that's what you're what working on, on right now, yeah. yeah. And, then bu- and then I'm also working on physics of the nanoscale, which DNA, of course, is very, very small. Mm-hmm. We're using it to build t- tiny structures. You can think of DNA as like bricks and houses. Yeah. And then you can get even smaller, even smaller. Really? You get down to nuclear physics. Okay. You know, smashing atoms together. Uh-huh. Uh, one of the great things happening in nuclear physics, actually, in the next three years, I believe, is the fusion reactor in is, Switzerland is, is, is going to finally be powered on.
0: That's that big thing underground, isn't it?
1: That's the particle accelerator. Okay. So
0: and then what's this? So that's the particle accelerator. So what's in the particle
1: accelerator, they smash things together. Mm-hmm and they look at what pops off to see what's inside of protons. Yeah. Because, you know, you have atoms and then you have protons and neutrons and electrons, and then you're like, well, what if there's something inside the protons? Inside the protons, they discovered we have things called quarks. And they're like, well, that's interesting. Is there anything inside of the quarks? we we'll hold the quarks together. So that's one really cool application of, of physics research is, you know, what actually makes up the building blocks of our world. Yeah. And that's what they do in that big uh, particle accelerator in Switzerland. And then the other thing that they're building is called the ITER, which is the fusion reactor.
0: And that—that's the thing that you you just brought up before, right? Yes, okay. absolutely.
1: So right now, what we have is nuclear fission. So we have uranium, and it splits apart, and that creates energy. Mm-hmm. But if you take tiny, tiny atoms like hydrogen and helium, and you smash them together, they yeah. form bigger, bigger atoms, and also release energy. So the main goal Bi- of big, nucle-
0: bigger atoms, as in, as in like what?
1: As in, like, if I take uh, hydrogen and hydrogen and I smash them together, I can make helium. And if I take helium and helium and I put it together, I can make lithium. Okay. This is actually how molecules and atoms, uh, elements were made in our universe. So all the elements that we have today, like carbon and everything, were actually forged in the cores of stars. Mm -hmm. So stars undergo nuclear fusion.
0: When they, like, collide together?
1: No, just the star itself. So you can think of the star as, like... Like a manufacturing plant. Yeah. So the star has all this energy and density and mass, and it's really, really hot. Mm-hmm. And at the center of it, you're pushing atoms closer and closer together, so it's so that they fuse. Yeah. Which is the why we call it nuclear fusion.
0: That's crazy. And so
1: that can create everything up until iron. Uh huh. So any iron that you see here on Earth was once forged in the heart of a star, which is like is a famous quote from. Carl Sagan, I believe, Uh and he said we are all made of star stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And he meant that the the iron elements in our bodies were fortune stars.
0: So naturally, how did we get above iron?
1: So then you have other ways of synthesizing more elements. It's just not nuclear fusion.
0: Okay. Now, back to the particle accelerator. I've done some reading on that. That's something I've been very interested in. I heard that one of the things that they were looking at that is in what created the Big Bang.
1: Absolutely. Really?
0: Yeah. That's true. That's awesome. Have they learned anything new through the particle accelerator?
1: So the research in that field of physics, it's nuclear physics, and they're interested in understanding the fundamental particles. So they're interested in filling out the standard model, which is like what builds up protons, what Mm -hmm. builds up the protons add together, builds up atoms. So they're interested in the very building blocks of everything that we can see and touch
0: Isn't that kind of dangerous? Because (laughs) they're literally like... I don't know. I'm not a physics researcher. I'm a public health researcher. Mm -hmm. But from what I understand, they're literally recreating the Big Bang underground in Switzerland.
1: Sort of. The Big Bang is much bigger.
0: Sort of is still a scary answer. (laughs) They are
1: smashing atoms together. Mm -hmm. And actually, there was this sort of theory, almost a, a myth, that... What if when we smash atoms together it'll make a tiny black hole? Yeah, that's
0: what I that's what I was and then reading. Somebody
1: was like, "Hold on. If we make a tiny black hole, won't that expand and like eat everything?" Yeah. Well, that's good for science fiction movies and drama, but unfortunately, you know, or I guess, fortunately for well, us. Yeah, it's good for <laughs> us too. That doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately for Stephen Hawking, he was well, a little sad. Wh- why to stay black holes?
0: Why can't that happen? Like, what prevents that from happening?
1: Black holes require a lot of, a lot more energy and a lot more density to form. Okay. So just smashing, we really, it's really just one hydrogen atom and another hydrogen atom hitting together, and stuff like particles, accelerators. So it's really just protons interacting with other protons at high energy, and mm-hmm. they break into pieces and then we can look at the pieces and try to back calculate what it was actually made of yeah
0: so in your opinion how do you think the big bang even started in the first place because that that's something that i really want to know but i cannot figure out on my own
1: yeah absolutely yeah
0: i don't think anyone can actually like figure that out on their own but like
1: you know by themselves probably (laughs) not but with uh, a good team and years of research for sure Mm -hmm. so the field of physics that deals with the big bang is caused cosmology. And one of the great professors here, his name is Dr. Brett Elman, he teaches a course on cosmology and I have the honor of being his course this semester. And that's one of the questions he brought up at the beginning of the course is, you know, there's lots of questions about the universe. Here they all are. We only have the answers to a couple.
0: Uh-huh. How many questions were there? Did he, like, list all the questions on the board? Yeah, he well, wrote
1: a couple questions, really? like, what is the universe made of? What is the shape of the universe? Is the universe expanding or contracting? Yeah. Will the universe contract, you know?
0: Were there any answers to the questions that you just listed off? Or are those all unsolved?
1: Most are unsolved. There's some answers. We have ideas about the shape of the universe.
0: What does it look like? Are we quarks in a proton somewhere? <laughs> like, how does that work?
1: Um, I can't say for sure, but <laughs> I don't think so. No, that's just dealing with, you know, are we like shaped like a sphere or are we shaped like you know a a blob yeah so that question has been given a lot of thought you know is the universe infinite Mm -hmm. can we prove that it's infinite you know one of the things for sure that recent years they've proved is that the universe is expanding so that we know for sure and we know that if it's expanding then it had to have been smaller at some point so running time in reverse that's how we got to the theory of the the big bang
0: how do they know it's expanding? Oh,
1: that's a great question. I guess I'll just say observationally, when we look out with telescopes and measure the speed of objects moving away from us and deal with the light shifts, we can we can say that the universe for sure is expanding. Okay. So that's one of the questions we know. But cosmology is a, a really great field that's made a lot of advancements in recent years. Mm-hmm. And it really it requires a lot of instrumentation that scientists like Galileo just didn't have, and so getting better and better instrumentation, getting better and better spacecrafts and telescopes like James Webb is going to open the opportunities Mm -hmm. in this area of physics, and I'm really excited to see what they come up with.
0: I'm super excited too. What what were some of the other answers to the questions that the professor listed off?
1: One of the most interesting things he said in the beginning of the course is that It's quite embarrassing that we're physicists, and we only know what 4% of the universe is made of. Really? So ordinary matter, stuff that we can see and touch and look out in our telescopes and see, only makes up 4% of the mass of the universe. I
0: think that's exciting. You only discovered 4% of the universe. There's 96% of the stuff that is still up for grabs, you know what I mean? There's like so much discovery that can be made. What what do you think is out there? Do you think there are aliens? Like, are (laughs) we the only ones?
1: It's nice to hope. Yeah. It's nice to be like, you know, maybe one day we'll get space travel and we can go far enough and we'll find other planets that have some forms of life, you know? I think Mm. the dreams of writers and artists as sci-fi novelists and painters are really amazing. Yeah. But I, I can say for sure that we probably won't know for a little while. Yeah.
0: Or they could find us first.
1: It's always but a possibility.
0: I, I, f- I feel that if there was intelligent life out there, they would already know that we exist, and they might be observing us, but they just choose not to interact with us, because maybe we're just on a lower level than them, and they, would, they wouldn't they would benefit them in any way.
1: Sort of like Star Trek in the Prime Directive. Yeah.
0: <laughs> they could be running experiments on us, and we don't know.
1: Yeah, well, I think if you argue that there's other intelligent life, they should know about us, but... We consider ourselves intelligent life, and we don't know about them. Right. So it's also possible. I mean, if you think about the scope of the galaxy, so far space travel-wise, we've gotten to an orbiting moon. Mm-hmm. We have not been able to get to the closest planet. You know, physically transport humans there. Of course, yeah. we spent Mar- Mars rovers and probes and stuff. But it just in our solar system, we can only get to the thing orbiting our planet. But in our galaxy. There's so many solar systems, and mm-hmm. in that one galaxy, then farther off there's another galaxy. The closest one is Andromeda, but it would take a generational space travel to get there, yeah, right? So I think considering the scope of the universe, assuming there is intelligent life, it does make sense that it would take a while for us to discover each other
0: mm-hmm. yeah it's it's weird. I always thought about it as like, say, like a colony of ants. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure from there, on their level, they think they're pretty intelligent. And they really are. The way that they interact with each other, and the way that their colony functions, it's very impressive. And I'm sure a lot of them, they haven't made an advancement from the mound to the next stone that's maybe like three feet away. That's maybe the farthest that their colony has advanced. I don't know how they how far they travel. But, but then, and a lot of colonies don't even know that, that we exist. Even though we're the dominant species on the planet... A lot of these ant colonies don't even know that we, we exist. But, I mean, we know that they're there, but we don't choose to interact with them because they're unimportant to us. Uh, it just wouldn't benefit me in any way to interact with that colony, you know what I mean? Just because we're on such different different levels of consciousness. Right, I mean, yeah. it would benefit me to come up and interact with a cat. But, I mean, I would get nothing by going over to an, to an ant colony.
1: Right, like you're not, you're not going to ask the ant to launch or anything like that. Right. <laughs> right, so there, that's why I think it's really interesting about physics is, and philosophy mm-hmm. in that respect, too, is the factor of size. Yeah. I mean, we are a certain size on our planet, and our ser- planet's a certain size in our solar system, and thinking bigger and smaller is one of the interesting things you get to do as a physics researcher.
0: Yeah, so. there could be life that's so much more intelligent than us, but they could be the size of our hands.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you wouldn't know. I guess you'd call it exobiology. Is, that,
0: is that like the study of aliens?
1: <laughs> study of how life could exist on other planets. Yeah. I guess one application of their research would be could we grow plants in Martian soil? There's been talk of trying to colonize Mars, so.
0: That's so interesting. How would someone get into exobiology?
1: Um, is
0: there, like, even a lot of research being done in that field?
1: I've read about research of you know using different soils to grow plants, mm-hmm. specifically for trying to grow plants on Mars and stuff. But I think the study of life on other planets is really interesting to humans. Yeah. Philosophically. Yeah. So I think if you have a background in biology and you have the opportunity to do that research, that'd be super cool.
0: I might just um, look into that. Yeah. I don't sure. know. <laughs> so. I know you said you've been wanting to do research, I mean, ever since you were in, how old?
1: Uh, I guess I can't pinpoint the exact date, but I think sometime in elementary school, Mm -hmm. I decided that science was super cool. Yeah.
0: Since you've jumped into it and started working on your first project, I mean, how's research really changed your perspective of things? How do you think you benefited from doing research?
1: Yeah, for sure. So the greatest surprise to me, I guess I always understood that research was difficult. And answering unanswered questions should take a lot of time and work and effort. But I did not realize how much time and work and effort (sighs) it comes with. And things fail way more than they go right. Yeah, I mean.
0: When I've asked people that question, that's been one of the most common answers is failure. Research, it teaches you how to deal with failure. And that's such an important skill to learn.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Mm. How, to, how
0: to bounce back from failure and how and to how keep improving to yourself in your, in your project.
1: Yeah, like a null result is not just a null result. It's a result that tells you what you can change, what variables you can affect. I mean, even sometimes just repeating the exact same thing, you do it the exact same way, and then it works.
0: Yeah, but you got to take it like as a learning experience, not a negative factor.
1: It can definitely be very, 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 very frustrating. Yeah. But it Especially is... Especially
0: when it keeps repeating and repeating and repeating, but...
1: Yeah, I think the I didn't realize that the the time frame from research is not a couple weeks. Mm-mm. I mean, papers and projects can go on for a couple of years before you reach any results that uh, are worth publishing, so to speak. Yeah,
0: you need to stay really focused, Absolutely. and it, it gets even it gets even more frustrating when you're trying to keep repeating and repeating something and discovering things and you don't get any results back on your experiment, and then your funding gets taken away because of that
1: yeah for sure That's that, that hasn't
0: happened to me but I've heard story I've heard stories and it's I've heard it's a very frustrating experience but
1: yeah funding and grant writing is a really big part of stem research for mm-hmm. sure and PhD students in graduate schools you learn how to to write applications you learn how to write grants and you learn how to fund your own research and I think that's a, a very very important skill for yeah. anybody interested in that sort of career mm-hmm. absolutely
0: yeah but it's, uh, it's all very important and stuff stuff espe- especially at this scale at the uh, in within physics research i mean people don't realize how important of a foundation it is for other other research and other products to be branched off of you're looking physically how you can get bacteria to move and then you use that to send it over to a department of biology and then fig- so they figure out how that's a be able to be used for medicines and that i mean then that branches out to help a lot of people None of that project would have started if it doesn't start with the physics
1: first Right, and that's yeah. not to say that it always starts with the physics, but I think right. definitely Interdepartmental research is really important and the research I'm doing um, with Dr. Smith lab with the imaging membrane proteins um, the graduate students and the postdocs all come from different fields. We have biologists, chemists, and mm-hmm. physics, and we're all working on the same project with the same end goal. But we're we're using our expertise to help with different parts of the projects. And I, it's one of my favorite parts, is to be able to do things I can do with physics, and then also learn about what's going on with the biologist PhD student and how she's working with the proteins, yeah. and how the chemist is working on creating lipid bilayers that mimic cells, mm-hmm. and everything like that is it, really awesome.
0: It's really cool when you see different departments collaborate with each other. So everyone has different skill sets, everyone has a different perspective on how things work, and then when you're able to put all of that together and especially understand how other how someone else would see your project or your experiment or what you're doing. It's really fascinating to open yourself up to these different perspectives and see what kind of a product you can come up with when you when you collab all of these different departments together.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this has also had been done on on world and country scales with the new fusion reactor. Mm-hmm. That's a joint project, I believe, of 10 different countries. Wow. So a huge amount of money and research and time is going into to building that fusion reactor to, with the goal of creating clean, renewable energy. Yeah, Of course, it's important to a lot of people and it's a, a huge collaboration. Mm-hmm. I think it's really awesome. I think
0: that's so cool. Are, so are the particle re- accelerator and the fusion reactor both in Switzerland?
1: The particle accelerator, you're thinking of the Large Hadron Collider, which yeah. is underground in Switzerland. right? And that is also a joint operation with a few different countries. They have like different detectors set up there. Mm-hmm. And certain countries have control of different projects, and they collaborate on things like that. The fusion reactor, I'll correct myself, is actually being built in southern France. Okay. So particle accelerator in Switzerland, and then the fusion reactor is being built in France.
0: Okay. I was starting to get a little bit concerned when... These two very big, scary projects were, were, if they were being built, like in a close proximity to each other.
1: Well, I'll say for the Large Hadron Collider, it's been operating for a while now, and nothing crazy's happened. No micro black holes.
0: Uh, find some wood to knock on.
1: <laughs> Huge machines do come with a small amount of risk, but if you think of the research that even goes into just trying to come up with how to build it, there's also equal amount of research about you know if you're dealing with radiation how to stop radiation mm-hmm. and so if you're dealing with colliding particles how to control that energy yeah how to do everything like yeah, that yeah
0: no i'm sure it's like very well thought out and everything just imagine imagine the just how intimidating that might be if you were a team of researchers and you had a certain outcome that you wanted to get and then you were designing an experiment and then you realized you needed something as large as this and the amount of approvals and grants and research to show that and additional research you would have to go through to try and get, try and get this kind of thing. Oh, that must absolutely. Be like, the amount of failure those people probably went through in order to get a product like that is incredible. Yeah, but. those
1: kinds of scales of projects are not just years, they're decades. Yeah. And even sometimes you need to invent stuff that you don't have yet to mm. even make it work. I believe for the fusion reactor they're using superconductors to power the magnets and superconductor research has increased a lot in the past couple of years, so I'm sure they're looking towards that and hoping to get even more powerful magnets to, to use on the fusion yeah. reactor.
0: It's definitely gonna be incredible to see what the the world of physics produces in the next in the next few years, decades. I know uh, it's gonna be for an, sure. Yeah and crazy. Well, Holly, if you had one more thing to share with the world, what would it be?
1: Uh, it would be enjoy science. Sometimes the math feels like it gets in the way, but math is beautiful too and grind out those homework assignments and be curious about the world Mm -hmm. and enjoy asking questions and don't be sad if the questions aren't unanswerable. Be excited to Mm -hmm. find out the answer.
0: Shout out to that.
1: (laughs) Shout out to that.
0: Well, Holly, it's been awesome having you on. You're welcome yeah, back you so anytime. Much. I know I'm definitely going to be inviting you back in the future because you're going to have outstanding research, and I'm going to want you to come back on as a guest and talk more about it. But until then, this is your host, John of the Research Review, creating a platform to inspire. Peace out.